evening, wherever, whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 57 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm a mom woman. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week, Clarice geeks out over 10th century chamber burials and Viking bowl cups with the Northman director, Robert Eggers. <laughs> Chris Pine and Tandy Way Newton pull out all the old knives in Amazon's spy thriller. And Sadie Hala and Yuri Borisov choo-choo-choos each other in train-based meet-cue compartment number six. Plus, in this week's hot take, you may have noticed that we're not covering Fantastic Beasts on the Fate of Black pod, and we talk about why. So, but before we get into that, let's have a quick catch-up with the crew... How's everyone doing uh, this week? Clarice, I'm so, I wish you could see this. Um, <laughs> because sometimes like Clarice comes on and she's just like wearing sunglasses. I'm like, oh, I heard you pulled over. And it feels like she's like, she's staking out somewhere. It's like she's in the window waiting to like see who turns up and then she's going to like lee on them. <laughs> Agent Lockway, come in. Um, Agent Lockway. I'm wearing my new Lord of the Rings hoodie that Yay. I bought. Because it was a Ukraine, um, you know, relief fund thing. It's so cool. It's got Sauron in it. I love it. Like, it's thematically not linked to the <laughs> Ukraine effort, but it's cute. It's got Speaking Lord of, the Rings on of it. Lord of the Rings, I've actually been re watching some clips from those movies. Because it's really good for mental health. It's such a good trilogy of movies. I've been re watching. Um, a lot of Gandalf clips because Gandalf's my favorite character. Oh. Um, so you know the, his fight with the Balrog, him freeing Theoden from Saruman. Uh, I've, all, I've I've been watching it one because it's cool and, and also because um, one of the themes of my Scala Radio uh, Empire playlist things is the Lord of the Rings, um, and the music by, by Howard Shaw in those movies is incredible. So yeah, it's been a good week on that front. <laughs> I don't like when. You know, you're waiting in the cinema and they have the soundtrack, but then sometimes they play the break. Is it called the breaking of the fellowship? Yeah. And it's so <laughs> fucked up. Why would you do that? <laughs> it's, like this, it's the saddest piece of music I've ever heard. And whoever is putting together those pre cinema <laughs> <laughs> Spotify playlists, like, I really appreciate the effort, but like, please also think of me. <laughs> Do we all agree, by the way, that The Lord of the Rings is the greatest trilogy of all time? Ooh. Yeah. At least, like, certainly if we're talking about big blockbustery movies. Hannah, you disagree. What is the greatest trilogy of all time? I refuse to answer the question. Because oh, come on. To quote... Such a uh, cop-out. No, because I don't think it is. Because, I mean, Star Wars... Um, the Godfather trilogy, um, Blade Trinity trilogy. <laughs> I just, you know what? I just hate. I, I fundamentally just don't like those questions. I just think I, I just find them like it's like I don't enjoy rankings. I don't enjoy things like that. Like someone said to me the other day, I was like, on the Northman, it was like, oh, where, like what? Who? Where, where does it rank among the North? Uh, like Robert Eggers, I was like. I refuse to engage in that and get that question. Also, They're all perfect. Made three films. movies. Yeah, but like, it's like that's what I mean. Three movies. I just, I just, I just hate the, I, I just hate the sportsmanlike way that we try, we have, like, we watch films, and as if like they aren't have merit in their own way. I just find it sometimes a bit 
I just I've increasingly become less interested in that way of gauging films um, or rating them. I don't like okay. you know we don't I don't like star systems so I kind of don't like to do the ranking things and this is like a light height thing like I'm I don't know I did a thing for GQ where I ranked Robert Pattinson's movie haircuts because that's like who gives a shit but yeah no speaking of GQ I need to have a word with whoever put that you know best uh, looks in superhero movies article up because that list was all wrong that ranking was all wrong that that T'Challa at number six. Which is just, I mean, Ruth Carter won an Oscar, for goodness sake, for her costume in that film. But it's okay. I'm rising above. I'm being the bigger man. It's oh, is this best costume? What was the best yeah. costume? I think I think they gave it to Logan in Logan. Really? Yeah, that was number like, one. a tank top, though. No, so, he's what? just wearing like a really <laughs> shitty suit because he's, exactly. he's like a that, guy. That was number one. Madness. I love Logan, but I, you're chatting shit with that you one. Know, exactly right. What? <laughs> I'm gonna send you this article. You can peruse it at your leisure. But yes, there's a yeah, number. Yeah, actually, I mean, I mean, when I think about looks and complete outfits, I'd that say, woman. I'd say that, I'd say, I'd say Black Panther mm-hmm. because because I don't think anyone's cared as much yeah. about creating the detail and the cultural influence and, and the style of it. And also mm-hmm. he's a king. <laughs> exactly right. Um, I mean, maybe, and then you could probably could, but you could probably put Iron Man next because I do think that's, he does dress well. Cat, yeah. cat, cat, cat woman. No, I <laughs> think it's, I think woman. it must be MCU, right? Oh, is it MCU? No, 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 no. Because no, Logan's not MCU. Logan's... Oh, Marvel. Is it all superheroes? Yeah. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. Oh well, then but, oh, that's so interesting. I need to read this article before I can comment. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of cool looks, I really dig Moon Knight's costume when he yes. puts on the full armor. It looks really cool. So we're on episode yeah. two. Yes. Um, and it's so it's kind of sad to me that there's only six episodes because I know. I I mean, in a way, it's good because at least you're cutting out the waffle. But then you're like, and so I mean, you don't want to have a Falcon Winter Soldier situation where you're like it feels like it's half baked. Or, like, things have been missed. But, like, I, I so far really like it. And spoilers! <laughs> uh, skip to the next one if you haven't watched it yet. Um, I like the fact that... I like the joke in it, in that, like, he can con- conjure up the suit and he just likes <laughs> to... Then Stephen conjures up a three-piece suit. Yeah. <laughs> and instead of, like, the normal capey one. Yeah. No, I really like that moment. <laughs> And his little joke, you know, like a butterfly, sting like a bee. <laughs> As he's I, uh, punching the jackal, it's really cool. <laughs> I want Oscar Isaac to explain to me step by step what what's he what is he doing in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, even the way he's moving, it's like... <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. On purpose, it's good. Like, he's, yeah. I know it's it's meant to be funny, but it's very amusing. And I was yeah. confused. And, it makes me wish he did yeah. more comedy because he's such a straight yeah. actor. I think we said this last mm. week, but he is, he's got, he he's one of those I, I, actors who has no, like, he doesn't care that he looks stupid. Yeah. And there's no um, ego. I mean, there's ego, but like, there's no, he's just not, um, insecure that way like you can happily mm-hmm. just leave everything on the floor and just look like an absolute twat and i appreciate that or in this way he says you tweet 
<laughs> I love it because when I interviewed him for in my for MTV, I was like, "So what's going on with the accent?" <laughs> and he's like, and "He goes, are you basically because it's a proper English British set?" So he'd ask people on set and be like, "So what would you say?" <laughs> and he's called, I don't know if we've got to the bit where he calls him calls someone a plonker, and I kind of wish someone had told him to to use the phrase. 24 karat plonker to really have that only pulls and horses because yeah. yeah. nah. that, that would even feed into the for me that would feed in even more deepen the kind of character he's created because obviously like as we know this is a correct like this is like a I suppose a safety part of his dissociative identity disorder and this is an identity that's separate from Mark Spector and mm-hmm. like the fact that he's doing such a caricaturish accent kind of in kind of feeds into that. And I kinda of love it if it's like his backstory is like he watched an episode like as Mark Spector, he watched an episode of Only Falls and Horses. <laughs> and that's how he like that would be like for me, that would be like such a really cool, like deep cut. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Uh Moonlight people, if you're listening to this, Hannah's just given you gold. Still time to add in a signal to uh to elevate the show even more <laughs> but yeah that, that, that'd be awesome i like the fact that this has a quite clear identity in itself a tone and everything that's whereas like falcon and winter soldier didn't really know what it was trying to do it was trying to be winter soldier s but i think in a if anything that's the driest thing it didn't have any character as like a kind of accent as a show and i think this one really does i really enjoy the the ups and downs of it, the kind of weirdness of it but like the horror bit of it, I think, and, and the, how they execute some of the, because I was really worried with with this thing again, like with the Punisher being so violent and Moon Knight being violent. It is actually still very violent, but in a very kind of subtle, in a way that feels in a, like... In an MCU way. Yeah, no, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. it's done it in a way that feels like, I think using sound design, I think that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. You can hear the hits. Yeah. Yeah. You feel it, it kind of like, mm, you know what I mean? Yeah, and the cool bit of action that we get at the end of episode two, I really enjoyed that too, uh, when he sort of finally put the armor on, and uh, there's a couple of really beautiful shots as well as he's running along the rooftops uh, with the crescent moon in the background. Uh, it's really, really cool. It looks really cool. So, yeah, only four episodes left, which seems insane to say, uh, but I'm enjoying it thus far. I think... There's the first audible fuck in the MCU as well in that yeah. episode. Yeah. Remind me? I'm completely blanking he's this out. Like I swear, I remember being like, oh, they swore. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I think it's Stephen yelling at Mark when they're in the mirror, or is it the other way around? Oh, yeah, and the bell's yeah, ringing, really good scene. Yeah. And he says a, he's, he says a, he says a fuck. He says and a I fuck. was like, language. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Captain Flint. <laughs> Um, I and also I really like and again I go on about but but I really like May Kalamawi. I think she's great. She's cool. I like her. Yeah, she's really really good. I like the fact that we're getting more info on her character and how she fits into things. And I feel like, given the internal war that Mark and Stephen are going through, it's really interesting to see the similarities and differences in terms of those characters and how they um, interact with uh, May Kalamari's Layla. Did you see, by the way, you know when he's looking at the phone, phone, his phone, did you see, like, there was a, there was a French name? 
in the list. Oh, really? Of him. And he only finds his flip phone. Is it the flip phone? And he's like looking, scrolling through, and he's like, who is Stephen finds it? And he's like, oh, wait, where are all these numbers? Is that in that episode? <laughs> this episode? Honestly, I haven't rewatched it since I got this. Because he answers the phone. <laughs> he answers the phone. Yeah, but he answers yeah. the phone. It's Layla, but there's a bit in it. I can't remember if it's this episode or the last mm. episode. There was a bit in it where a French name comes up, and the name is refers to like, it's like an Easter egg, because that's mm. um, like a character who's like his best friend, like Mark Spector's <gasps> best friend. Are we um, getting a French person in the MCU, finally? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it should be. Yay. Duchamp, that's it. So Duchamp is like a character who's like the best friends uh, with Moon, with Mark Spector. Mark Spector. So okay. I'm kind of excited for when like he pops up because <laughs> he's a French guy, he's a gay guy as well. So it's like, okay. he's actually like proper gay. He has a relationship with a personal trainer in, in the <laughs> comic books. Okay. So yeah. I shall keep. But you know what? What I like about um, Layla as well is like, I don't know, if, I, I feel like often when there's like a love interest introduced in, in, in the MCU and historically they've basically mostly been a damsel in distress or, you know, they're just there to, because if you think, even, I know, I know it's evolved and it's changed. So, but when Pepper Potts was first introduced, when Jane Foster, you know, Christine in Doctor Strange, they're like these normal, like normal women, like human mm-hmm. women. And all they're doing really there is just being like a kind of like, love interest for the character and I like the fact that with this character that's not she is that person but she's also got serious autonomy and she can hold her own and we're going to see that develop as the series goes on and it makes mm-hmm. me feel like oh nice one this person can handle herself mm-hmm. so yeah 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 I no, think things... as well like without doing what I like about it I mean this is just from the episode I've seen is that she's yes she has autonomy but without doing that weird force thing of like I can take care of myself. Like mm-hmm. she's just doing yes. stuff in the episode and then not making a big deal about it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's what I want. Yeah. Is that you don't character. have to signpost the feminism. Like it exactly. is just feminist yeah. on her own. And it is. Have yeah, like a it, massive mm-hmm. moment of her saving him. And she's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can, exactly oh, I wish we could go back in time and tell the three, five, five writers that. Because my goodness, yeah. God, they really ruined that one. That, that ended. I can't believe they did that. They literally yeah. they played themselves. Um, yeah. Anyway, right. So, uh, oh God, I'm so excited for next week. I cannot wait for us to chat about the Northman. I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be like an out of body experience talking about it. And, um, but before, <laughs> um, but uh, luckily for us. Uh, we have a little taster <laughs> of the film with, like, the master himself, Robert Eggers, via Clarice. So, Clarice, tell me how, tell me about your old, old Norse nerding out. <laughs> I had actually spoken to Robert. I spoke to him for The Witch. And I, what I remember from that interview is it took, like, five minutes for him to start talking about Jungian archetypes. So I was like, okay, this is <laughs> this is the vibe that I need to bring into a Robert Eggers interview. <laughs> so I knew because, you know, Fate to Black, we've got a little bit of our own autonomy. I was like, why don't I just ask him questions about Viking history? <laughs> so I apologize. This is quite a self-indulgent interview. Um, I think listeners at home, you should be fine in terms of information. I tried to not go too deep. 
uh i guess like i talk about shield maidens like that's there's a bit of a debate over the shield maidens of like myth and legend female warriors whether they existed in real life there is robert eggers brings this up but there is some like archaeological evidence for it but there's lots of people who dispute it uh we get into that <laughs> <laughs> but i think other than that we should be we should be okay <laughs> Uh, so we're going to jump into the trailer first to give you the vibe, a little bit of the Viking, you know, girl, Valhall. And then we're going to jump into the interview. Enjoy. How I've missed you, my son. One day this kingdom will be yours. Thank you, father. My king. Wonderful. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me today. And um, I want to congratulate you on your film first. I I feel like I'm, it's my job to be a film critic and to to use language. And I feel like this film left me literally speechless because I felt it on such a, a visceral and emotional level. So I'm like, God, I don't know what to tell you how I feel about it. Cause it's just like, I want to, I want to yell. That's all I want to do. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so I decided to come to you today with, I guess, more intellectually uh, charged questions. Cause I am also a student of history and I did a module at my university about the history, um, history on film. And the thing my lecturer would always say, he'd always conclude that a historical accuracy is the enemy of entertainment. And what I loved about the Northman is how much that proves him wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I know that you tussle, tussled a little bit with um, the edit and trying to, to get that balance right. And I, you know, I think for me, it is the perfect balance between uh, history and Hollywood, but you know, what was the process for you and how did you do reach that final cut? Uh, I mean, the thing that is that um, I, I, a couple things, you know, I knew before I gave the script to the studio that a film this size, I was not going to have final cut. And, uh, and so I knew that that was the risk that I was taking by signing up to, 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 to allowing, to, to, having the great fortune to have a studio pay a massive amount of money to make like this movie. And um, and what I promised them is that I would make the most entertaining Robert Eggers movie I could. But entertainment, uh, maybe to your professor's point, is not necessarily like my top priority, uh, it, like instinctually. And so, um, and, but also we shot this movie single camera, uh, mostly long, unbroken takes. So to some degree, you can't really change all that much. Um, uh, but, um, and, and really maybe, maybe we really just made the film mostly a bit shorter. There is, you know, a few things that we kind of clarified, uh, you know, but that's really the main thing. But, 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 but I think that 
like I, I needed that studio pressure as difficult as it was to 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 make the most entertaining version of the movie. I, I needed that pressure. And uh, and this is, you know, this is the director's cut. This is this is what I this is what I wanted to tell. I think, you know, most of the concessions about like history, uh, you know, were made in the script phase. But I think, you know, Fre Freya, who is the, a female goddess, the brother of Freyr, who Fjellner, Clay Spang's character, has an idol to, you know, she made a larger appearance in scenes that are not in, in the film. But finally, you know, it's about Alex's, it's about Alex's story. So some of the scenes that I really love and are really well done, like finally don't help to, to contribute to this, as Willem Dafoe's called, this muscular movie that needs to just like move forward and go. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm fascinated by this implicit tension in historical film between truth and perception, because there's, there's always this idea that even if you show you know, the truth, the historical truth, audiences might not actually believe that. True. And I know, for example, on this, um, you had to tone down the color palette a little bit because Vikings loved color, but audiences, they only see the decayed fragments of the artifacts and very worn down artifacts. So it's like, there's a little bit of a, a gap there. Were there other instances in the film where you had to make those kinds of concessions? Uh, well, the the Viking, uh, the, we we had different hairstyles to try that tried to like communicate uh, class and 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 cultural differences, but like probably not a lot of Vikings had like shoulder length or longer hair, um, you know. Even though that's very much a Viking image that we that we have, like probably more like around this length. Like in and swept back like Clay Clay Spang's hair, Fjellner's hair, you know, and 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 in fact, the bowl cut that we're using on a lot of enslaved characters uh, and Slavic characters, like you know, they're they're on the Osseberg in the Osseberg uh, uh, burial. There is carvings of Vikings with, you know, with bowl cuts. Uh, but and 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 if had I made a, a small, a smaller Viking movie, more of the scale of like The Witch or maybe a little larger, I, I would have. That was only about Vikings, and we didn't get into different cultures. Like maybe you you know like the king could have had a, a bowl cut like that. But it just. But I needed to differentiate the cultures. Yeah, and not. To, I, I mean, not to right. say that Vikings didn't ever have this, but probably not to the prevalence <laughs> mm. that I uh, I show in the film. Yeah, but it, it is really interesting, like just those alterations you have to make and that consciousness you have to have around uh, what you're actually showing on screen. Because I, I read this fantastic piece by uh, Neil Price, who I think was a consultant. On it your sure film, was. Thank my lucky stars. <laughs> and he, he wrote that uh, Vikings have become a caricature of masculinity. And it feels like such a tricky thing because, you know, we know that Viking imagery is so often co-opted by white supremacist movements. But at the same time, 
Viking masculinity was really brutal and bloody and rigid. Uh, and I really loved how you dealt with it, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, just just getting that tone right. Yeah, and I and I don't I don't really have an answer to how I found the tone. I think that my a couple things, like my goal as a filmmaker is to like articulate the, the, the Viking mind, uh, as Neil Price calls it, the, and the Viking mindset and worldview and uh, without judgment for the audience to judge themselves. And I really try to do that and not Im impose my beliefs, my opinions onto the movie. But originally I didn't like Vikings for the reason that Neil said. I didn't was into, into all this macho stuff. And also to what you said, the the misappropriation, the right ring right wing misappropriation of Viking culture made me really not interested in it. So that's in me as a filmmaker, you know, whether even if I'm trying to suppress it, you know, the fact that I don't show any sexual violence must say something, even though like you, 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 about me, even though I don't want it to say anything about me, it probably does, you know? And so, so, and then, you know, talking, con continuing to speak around the point, <laughs> you know, uh, Vi Viking culture celebrated violence. And the sagas sometimes read like 80s action movies, you know, uh, Scarpathen and Yell Saga slides across the ice and it's super exciting. He smashes a guy's skull in and says, now that's what I call a headache, you know. Uh, and, and I'm making like a big expensive tentpole action set piece movie. So I have to have thrilling, entertaining, violent sequences at times, but how do I do that in a way that's not condoning violence and not glorifying violence? How do I, I you know, and I, I don't know the answer, but that's the question I'm constantly asking myself when I'm making the choices of, of how I shoot it and, and what we're shooting. Yeah, well, I think, I think you got it. And it's interesting you said about not trying to to put yourself or your perspective in it. But I guess at the same time, there's so much debate in history. And I love that you made the decision to, to include a shield maiden or a woman warrior uh, within that raid. Uh, I know that this is a thing that's gone back and forth with historians about whether they were fictional or, or real. Uh, was it kind of fun to be able to, I don't know, dip your toe in those debates and go, yeah, you know what? I am going to put a shield made in it. I'm going to do that. Well, I think it's completely can, like, you know, there is, you know, this Birka grave is one woman. One, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's not, it's not, you know, the Vikings TV show with like hordes and hordes of uh, female Viking warriors. It's, to, to think of the like ego strength of this one woman in this insanely patriarchal society who could convince people that she was a Viking commander, like 
I, you know, and and also seeing the the way these female characters are in sagas, not even not forget about shield maidens in legendary sagas. I mean, just like mothers and queens, you know, and and vulvas and the power that they can command. Like, I believe that there could be someone so exceptional that that they were able to to do this, but. Like it's not, yeah, it's not hordes and hordes of female Viking warriors. Yeah, but that makes a lot of sense to me because everything I know about the Vikings is that they had extremely rigid laws about you know masculinity and your place in society. But the the artifact evidence suggests that yeah, maybe people, you know, occasionally people didn't really. Well, but I mean, sneak around it. But but if someone's so yeah, if someone's so exceptional, I mean, it's exceptional. Then there you go. I mean, the thing is, mm. like, so. Ingvar Sigurdsson, who plays the he-witch, you know, who's the male practitioner of Sather, which is, you know, uh, magic that only women are supposed to do. It's also taboo even for women, but whatever. But it's, but, you know, he is wearing female garments, which, you know, and these, uh, m you know, male witches uh, were, you know, liminal in the community and were, uh, you know, looked down upon and, 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 in all these ways, but like Viking Kings used them because they were good at magic and they needed it sometimes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I wanted to ask as well about, um, the through line in this film is that old Norse idea that the Norn have they your fate is, has been woven and there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to face up to that destiny with you know ferocity and bravery. And I find that like I find that weirdly comforting, that idea that it's it's you don't have any choice in it. I, I wondered how you uh what your interpretation of how that informed Viking mindset was. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree that there is a, a, a comfort in, you know, like what Willem Dafoe says, some Viking proverb that's probably from Havamal, maybe not, apologies, Viking nerds, if I fucked up, but, but something, you know, something to the effect of, you know, like now live always without fear because your fate is set and you cannot escape it <laughs> you know i mean it, that 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 there is something comforting there but i also think fatalism when it wasn't it isn't like this for vikings but i think like you know uh russian fatalism can border on nihilism which becomes scarier Mm, yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, I have one more question. I, I know that. Oh, that's a shame. Nosferatu... I was having fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would love to just sit here and talk all day about Vikings, um, but unfortunately, I do have to go for this. But <laughs> I, I know that Nosferatu may be slightly on the back burner on the at the moment. But I wanted to ask specifically, is that also going to have a historical context, like a strict historical context, or will you take a more I guess, fantastical, supernatural approach to it. If it is, I mean, the, certainly the version that I was trying to make that fell apart was my usual approach. 
okay oh okay well hopefully it comes back together <laughs> soon and yeah. you can watch it because i i love the idea of it um thank you so much for for joining me today and congratulations again on the film thank you henry celia it's been a long time they've opened the books on flight 127 hijackers had help from inside our station here in Vienna. We need to find out if we had a mole. Vic has me looking into flight 127. So this is an interview. I thought you were here to see if we still had that old spark. All the old knives, older knives, newer knives. <laughs> <laughs> Something bad. The CIA, Chris Pines, wearing a suit. Na 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 na. Um, yes, this is all the old knives, which is um Amazon's new uh, spy thriller. Uh, <laughs> when the CIA discovers one of its agents leaked information that costs more than a hundred people their lives, veteran operative Henry Pelham is assigned to root out the mole from among his former office mates at the agency's Vienna station. His investigation takes him from Austria to England to California, where he's reunited with his one-time colleague and ex-lover Celia Harrison. The pair are forced to blur the lines between profession and passion in this tale of global espionage, moral ambiguity, and deadly betrayal. Directed by Janos Metz and written by Olin Steinhauer, the film stars Chris Pine, Tandy Way Newton, Lawrence Fishburne, and Jonathan Price. So, um, where should we start with this? I feel like there's, I mean, you know, this is a very, very uh, old and familiar tradition of making movies about CIA operatives and something, something terrorism, you know. Uh, so let's start with the question of, you know, how how typical is this or is this trying to subvert the genre in any way, Hannah? Well, you know how I feel about these type of espionage fillers with uh, terrorists. And I will say, to its credit, I think instead of just, it's not simply, oh, Islamic Islamist extremists, it actually gets into why someone might become an extremist against the West and actually shows why there's good reason what not not to justify it but i think it really shows just the absolute brutality of western interests in the middle east around the world and how actually i fundamentally think this film shows that they're they're not the good there's no good guys this is a very much a there is no good guys film uh in this thing i also like the fact that you know um because it's it's a, it's a CIA station in Vienna. I like that part of it. They actually have an Arab woman in the team on the good side. It's um, Ad Hassan Kamal, and I don't know if anyone saw Wadja, the film by Haifa Mansour. She plays like the head teacher in that, and she's great. And she, in this in this film, Ad plays um, Layla, who's on like the CIA team. I mean, she's barely in it. She has like a few lines, but you know, I suppose there's that baby step. So I think in a way, it is kind of you know, you know making it less the typical 
real bad Arab situation, but it's like real bad at everyone. <laughs> yeah, I think baby steps is such an interesting word to use because that was kind of my takeaway is it made me think about like where we are now with these kinds of movies where mm -hmm. yeah it's like it's not okay anymore to just do what used to be acceptable 10 even five years ago there has to be some level of self-reflection now otherwise i think you know audiences i'm hoping are a little more like wise and educated to <laughs> these kinds of topics um and yeah and i think the idea as well that it's it's a situation that happened in the past so they they keep flashing back to the to the attack and then forward in time to to the present time where it's the whole film is sort of wrapped around this idea yeah of reflection and reconsideration and and even though it's very recent history like the the trying to come to terms <laughs> with yeah the the west actions i guess sorry i'm not doing good sentences today but you get what i mean <laughs> uh and amon i mean chris pine he's done like he's done quite a few action pieces like he's sort of like to me like a semi-action guy like he's he's dipping his toe in the water and then taking it out again he's played a lot of spies though <laughs> yeah he's played quite a few spies he's a spy guy I feel like I don't also automatically associate him with like action and with, you know, running and yelling Someone on phones. Someone has not watched This Means War in a long time. <laughs> oh my God, that movie's so old. I love it so much. 2013. I mean, Amon, what's your take on Chris Pine in this? Do you think he's a? Do you think he's a good? Oh my God! Let the record reflect that Hannah Flint has in her hands right now a Blu-ray copy of This Means War. It's not Blu-ray. I'm not spending Blu-ray on This Means War. <laughs> like, I got this years ago uh, because it was my phase of literally obsessing about Tom Hardy and, like, thinking I like, wanted... We all go through that phase. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Do you know? Okay. Everyone has a Tom Hardy phase, surely. 100%. You must have really liked The Dark Knight Rises. I was... Oh, no, Mad Max. That's that's the Tom Hardy movie for me. Okay. Uh, we're getting off topic, Chris Pine. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned a lot of Chris Pine actiony stuff here, and I I think one of the strengths of this film um, is that it gets into the nitty gritty of espionage. There's not that much action to speak of, and Chris Pine really acquits himself very very well. I think both him and Tandy Way Newton do. They have really really great chemistry, and the camera knows it the camera lingers on close-ups of their faces at multiple points throughout this entire film um and you really sort of feel that they are each other's what if the one that got away what if this happened what if that happened and i really like the back and forth of that storytelling between them in the past and the present as they try and figure out uh what happened and the circumstances that led them both to where they currently are i found that very interesting I will have to say, I'm going to slightly disagree with you here. Okay. <laughs> I think my one of my big issues with this movie is that it is meant to be like this electric, like dangerous energy between the two lead characters. And I was not feeling it. And I don't think that's Tandy Way Newton's or Chris Pine's fault. It's more to me about the way it was shot. Like there's a scene mm. where they're in the restaurant 
And he's like, do you want some white bacon? And she's like, nah, I'm vegan or vegetarian. And he's like, go on. And then she like leads over and like gently nibbles at his bacon. And um, I could tell that it was meant to be sexy, but I was in no means aroused by the bacon eating. Uh, Hannah, were you aroused by the bacon, the bacon nibbling? I can't even remember that scene. <laughs> that was it's like that's how, the that's how, and that's how forgettable. No, but, but I think it speaks to the fact that um, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think it had heat. I don't think they had chemistry. And maybe that's because maybe it's the down to direction or the way it's shot, but. And maybe it's also just because what the thing is. I mean, it's hard to kind of like the, the, the stakes of it, but I just didn't. I didn't really get the impression that like even in later years that there was this, because I think that's the whole point. It's supposed to be this lingering love and it's like, oh my God, why aren't we together? And there's obviously like a reason why they're not together, but it's like painful and it's hard. And I just didn't really get that from, from the film. And I think that's the problem as well for me. I think overall, it's like, it didn't feel charged. There was no point where I was like, I know, eager to know what happens next. It was more like, okay, what's happened? What's, let me know what's happening. I just want to get get to the conclusion, I think. I kind of wanted to hurry it up rather than not long it out. Yeah. That's really interesting what you say about there was no heat because I definitely felt it. And there's, there's actually, you know, pretty sort of extended sort of love scene in this that feels very, very passionate. And I definitely felt the heat in that moment. Yeah, but I, do, I think you can't just, I just think just because there's a sex scene doesn't mean that it's, I don't, I don't even think the sex scene was that like, Sure, it's shot in a way, but I didn't believe <laughs> the passion. I'm not saying just because of the sex scene. I'm saying in addition to everything else, there's also the sex scene. Yeah. Um, so, but I so, think yeah. I think you know a look can can a, a, a look um, up between two people without touching can generate far more um, erotic energy than a sex scene. And I and agree. so so my head like that. I mean, sure, it kind of it kind of. It's like a sneaky... I feel like sex scenes sometimes are a, are a sneaky way of saying, oh, this is erotic. And if it's not shot in a certain way, or the actors, I don't believe it. It's not. It's just performative. And I know it's performative, but it's just, you know, pedestrian, I think. I feel like, for me, part of it is because this is a, you know, this is an international thriller. And you know, he goes to London, the globetrotting. There's quite, it's quite an expansive movie. And I feel like the kind of relationship they're wanting to build, it's meant to be, you know, it's like out of sight or like speed, you know, like the the sort of passion that comes out of claustrophobia. Mm. And we never, the film never slows down enough to get that moment of like really intense, intimate, they're totally alone. Because that, even that restaurant that they're in, where I think a lot of the, the flirting comes through in, it's just like a restaurant. <laughs> it's very big and like minimalist and open and there's no real intimacy to it the the lighting is very bland I feel like it's a lot so for me I kind of don't feel like it it wasn't in the performances because I feel like individually they were they were doing something but they were in an environment that had absolutely no passion to it at all Mm. give us sexy sets (laughs) <laughs> that's what we're missing Hollywood <laughs> um, it's interesting though when you think that uh, I think the screenwriter 
Oli Steinhauser, is that his name? Yeah. Um, he is also the author of a book, and he also mm-hmm. wrote um, The Tourist <laughs> and that book series. I don't think he did a script for that, but oh The Tourist was one of those <laughs> films that's supposed to be kind of sexy, and you have like Angeline Jolie and, and Johnny Depp, and it's not really that. And even it, that film couldn't bring out the sex, sexiness of them both at the time. So, I. Uh... Although this is an, an Amazon release, you can you can see it in cinemas, I believe, in Cousins. Um, I don't know why I said that weirdly. <laughs> Cousins. Cousins. You know, the Cousins cinema. <laughs> but guys, are we are we screening, streaming, or skipping all the old knives? Amon. I'm streaming it. Uh, I had a good time with this one. I feel like it's a kind of slow burn. Uh, adult movie that we don't really see much of these days. Um, I think Pine and Tandyway Newton were great together. So yeah, stream. Hannah? Uh, yeah, I'll say stream because it's an original film and it's not like I, 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 I like moments of it. I don't think it's breaking the mould. And considering some of the streaming output that's been out, been put, put out in the world recently, I'd say this is probably better than it's better it's than the bubble, bubble. shade. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a whole week and you can't let go of the bubble. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I agree. I think I'd stream this. It's so it's so a movie you would stream on Amazon in like a nice way. You know, it's you just you pop it on on a Thursday night when you just want to watch something and it's pleasant. The story is interesting enough that you want to watch it to the end. You know, it's the it's the right vibe. And we need those movies because people are tired on Thursdays and they don't want to put too much effort. So Thursday stream (laughs) from Chris Pine to pining for each other on a train. Eh? It's compartment number six. You're a Russian poison. Yet. Yeah, it's Finlandy. Once more, just before I'm leaving, torn on the platform because my lesbian love is at home. <laughs> I don't know uh, that song, but it's nice. I like Jack Vignati, yeah. oh, it's so good. It's one of those classic oh, love nice. songs, but it's about like a place. So it's like about him leaving London. He doesn't want to leave London. Aww. So I miss you and I love you and I know it's not over for now. Do you like my accent I'm doing with it? Because he sings like this. I, I know, you. yeah. Oh, but now I, I know what you. kind of song it is. You're it's not like my girl, Maccabees, you're my right? town. Yeah. Um, okay. It's like that whole era where it's like Kate Nash, my fingertips are holding. And like Lily Allen where it's all like, you know, very accenty mm. London singers. Yeah. Anyway, this is not a London film. <laughs> Young Finnish archaeology student Laura is convinced by her lecturer and lover to take a trip to an ancient site of petroglyphs near the Arctic Circle. However, when she boards a long-distance train to take her there, she finds that she has to share a carriage with the boorish and belligerent Joha, a foul-mouthed, misogynistic drunk travelling to his new job as a miner. Initially, they seem to have nothing in common, but like the landscape they're travelling through, the more time they spend together, the more he thaws, revealing an unforeseen kindness beneath the macho facade. Directed by Juha Kosmanen, it stars Sadie Hala, Yuri Borisov, 
Dinara Drukova and Julia Org. So, um, I admittedly watched this, I think I watched this last year. So I remember liking it a lot and remember mm -hmm. aspects of it. So I'm going to leave this chat because it's fresh in your guys' memories. So, oh no, I, I also watched it ages ago. And <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I Clarice is leaving this. <laughs> I also watched it ages ago, but I remember it. Wow. Oh God, why did we watch it so long insane. ago? Was it because we were watching it for... Um, for war stuff, yeah, yeah because it was uh, it was it was in competition in, in the Biffers, uh, among I others. I watched it on a special day where they showed lots of Curzon movies, and it was very nice. Oh and yeah, they did that. Well, thank yeah. you for putting that day on, Curzon. One thing I really Curzon. <laughs> <laughs> I think let's talk about I suppose just train movies in general, because I feel like this is obviously this. You know, we've had Darjeeling Limited, Snowpiercer. Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, yeah. I even have Mission Impossible thrown into this because of its <laughs> epic train scene. Has anyone done ever done interrailing? Because I did that for a month traveling on trains, and this brought back quite oh. a few memories of like just how she is when you're on a train <laughs> for fucking eight hours or nine hours. Uh, where you're like, I remember this one time we were we were in a train compartment and. Um, there was like, there's like, it was so full. It was like eight people to a car park and just like there for like eight wow. hours sat straight. And you're like, oh, some people are like lying Jeez. in the hallway trying to sleep. It was so bad. But anyway, um, uh, what, how do you feel like this? I suppose, what, what do we think about films that are set on trains and how do you think this kind of like adds to that cinematic legacy, um, Clarice? Uh, I think it is it is really about the space, isn't it? I mean, I've not done interrailing, but I, I've done the train from London to Edinburgh, like, a lot. <laughs> and that's a pretty, like, chunky train ride. And um, I've done the overnight one quite a lot as well. And it's a, it is, like, there is a weird forced intimacy to it right because you're all just human beings in a little tin can speeding along uh the landscape and you're so i feel like emotionally with trains we're, we're torn between like yeah that claustrophobic aspect of it which i think is where snowpiercer gets a lot of its drama from and also the romantic element because it's such an old world transport and you think of trains and you think of, yeah, like the Orient Express. <laughs> I think a lot of people associate it with this, this pure tie. It's like that man on tape. What's Francois? The, the train oh, yeah, boy. The guy who looks at trains. You know, there's like, there's such a romantic association with it for some reason. Cause I, I think people want to think of a time where we weren't trying to get places as quickly <laughs> and there was a pleasure in the actual travel aspect. So I, I think what I did really like about this film to end that very long ran is, um, is that it, it did find a way to combine those two elements. It's got some of the claustrophobia in it and also the, the romantic, uh, like old world element to it. And it finds a way to, to mix those two together. So it can be, it is both like Snowpiercer <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and um, Murder on the Orient Express, like smushed together, but with no murdering. You take the murder out. It's interesting when we think about like the coupling on this. I don't know, it kind of reminds me of like Australia or out of Africa. You know, that kind of, not out of Africa, the African queen. Well, they're out of Africa and the African queen. Um, <laughs> in the sense of like, there's the kind of posh, not posh, but there's like a middle class kind of girl 
and then the guy is you know a kind of working class sort of d- dynamic who's rugged who doesn't you know he's allowed to be that Amon how do you what did you think about that dynamic yeah initially <laughs> it's 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 not good they don't like each other uh because uh, as you said, I think of the synopsis, the, the guy comes off very, very boorish. Um, but yeah, the more time they spend with each other, the sort of confusing, but also it kind of makes sense dynamic uh, sort of emerges. And I really enjoyed that. The train film that I actually thought of a little bit while watching this was Before Sunrise. Um, mm. And obviously this is uh, the, the conversation between them is not as intellectual, but it's still really, really interesting that dynamic that emerges between them that's you know very very warm and tender despite that initial meeting where he, where he asks her if she's a sex worker <laughs> so you know things thankfully get better from there and you know by the time the film ends you are rooting for them as a couple and the fact that we can get to that place and it doesn't feel like threatening or psychopathic in any way given the claustrophobia of the situation I think is a testament to the film. I will say, I think, yeah, I, I did really like this movie, and but I, I think my one sort of small negative is that, yeah, it's interesting co- to compare it to something to Before Sunrise, where that's such a casual meeting. Like, there's no real stakes to it. It's yeah. just like people talking and they fall in love over the course of the conversation. While this... Um, yeah, it, it does start off with an element of danger. And in the early scenes when they first meet, like there is a real concern on her side that she is maybe going to be assaulted. Something very bad is going to happen to her. Mm-hmm. And I, I think to start a dynamic that way, but to still want to build a romantic relationship out of that, it's very hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not saying that it's impossible to ever tell that story. But I think this film could have done a little more to realistically track how these people would come out of that situation and actually find common ground or like for her to finally feel safe around it. I feel like I just, I think maybe by the very end, I believed why she would feel okay with him. I think for a big part of the middle chunk of the movie, I was a bit like... Mm. I would have just ejected myself out of that situation really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah. like it's, I, I feel... it's yeah. I think it's hard I it's such take... a massive red flag. Basically. I also take issue with the fact that she's a lesbian, established lesbian mm. at the beginning, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh well, if she meets the right guy, <laughs> she'll kind of like yeah. come out of that. I'm not saying she comes out being lesbianism, but I feel like yeah. the kind of establishing yeah. this hetero romance. Like I found that slightly uncomfortable because I feel like there's a kind of there's it kind of like that constant. I I feel like there's often when it comes to showing queer women, it's like oh we could it's it anyone could be Vince if she meets the right man to do it, and it's weird that this is the man like the man who's like the most misogynist, like a bit of a ticky person who's kind mm-hmm. of yeah. It just seemed that felt yeah. me. I found that to be a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I also feel like, you know, and I'm not going to go as far as to say it's like, you know, any person would have been the person. But a big part of the why Laura is going on the train trip in the first place is because of the loneliness aspect of it. 
of her character. Like, she wants to be going on this trip with her partner, who she feels very sort of estranged from, even though they're in a relationship. Like, the movie opens, I think, with that party with her partner's friends, but she feels so out of place. And, like, you know, she does have an interest in archaeology, but she really wants to spend the time with her partner. And there's a big loneliness aspect, of, which is part of what drives her to this man. Um, so when you, when you consider that, then that sort of relationship, I think, makes even more sense, uh, regardless of whether she's, whether she's a lesbian or not, if that makes any sense. I like this film and I like the journey. And I think, you know, there's that kind of lost in translation aspect of it a little bit. But I suppose, and the kind of, you know, taking chances and the kind of lived reality, it felt very real. But I also just, I don't know, I... I I suppose I think it kind of somewhat feeds into the kind of tropey nature of relationships and it is a romance between them. Um, I suppose you can say, is it platonic romance or type of romance? But it's fundamentally she's attracted to this person, whether she Mm -hmm. acts on it or not. Could this be undermining her position as a lesbian? I don't know. I I always think about like Gigli. (laughs) You know, how like, uh, how... Jennifer Lopez is gay until she meets Ben Affleck. Speaking of, congratulations to the happy couple again. (laughs) Are you sure that's what you wish to be wishing them, Hannah? You sent out a very aggressive tweet a few minutes ago. (laughs) I want to know, want Ben Affleck to know that he is on blast and if he fucks up with my girl J-Lo after proposing again... If he leaves, like, he has got so many red dots ready for him if he fucks this up. It's like RuPaul, don't fuck it up. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Sorry, anyway, segue out of the Jennifer is better Affleck. Back to apartment number six. I wanted to say the one thing I really enjoyed about this movie uh, was the way that it was shot because I think... Yes. It's just, it's fair, on a completely, like, boring, practical level with filmmaking, like, if you're working on such an enclosed set, you know, like a train compartment, where, you know, you have in the corridor maybe a space for one person, and then the cabin itself, it's like, it's so cramped, you can just about fit two people. That is such a massive challenge for any... for any camera to just navigate in that space with a sense of fluidity, um... And also, I think, a sense of imagination and atmosphere and the fact that, you know, this film does convincingly build a relationship within that space. That, to me, is really impressive, just on a basic filmmaking level. Um, And I enjoyed that. Because I go, you know, I take trains a lot for work. You could never make this movie on Southern Rail. (laughs) It's so unsexy. (laughs) That's the point. I I just I I loved how atmospheric it was as well. Like you could really feel the cold coming through the screen. It reminded me a little bit of Nightmare Alley in that regard, which is another film that just I felt like I was getting colder watching that movie. It is so. <laughs> <there's a> little, <laughs> and I, I got the same sort of uh, feeling watching this one too. Yeah, and just those little moments where it's like one, like she'll be on the train and he goes off, and and we're watching through the window. 
and you get these little tiny reminders that there is a world outside of this train cabin Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we're so cut off from it at the moment and i think that's you know when we're talking about fostering a relationship like this is my issue with um this is my issue with the the last movie all the old knives it's like it's i always think of speed do you know where they talk where they hook up at the end it's like oh Mm. relationships are created under like times of immense pressure or stress Mm -hmm. or like and i i think like this is very much that's what it applies to compartment number six it's like they come together because there's nowhere for the emotions to dissipate they all get trapped in that little room they start bouncing all around um and yeah i just i wish the last movie had had more of this that that's all i'm saying Mm. Mm. i agree okay well should we do so this is in cinemas uh and i think it's also as it's a curse on release it might be on curse on home cinemas as well you can watch it at home um so we're gonna say screen stream or skip amon I'm going to say screen. I really like this. Clarice? Yeah, I think screen. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say uh, screen as well. I think it's a really delicate film, beautifully shot, naturalistic. um, And yeah, took me back to my interviewing days. (laughs) So yeah, so so that is that on that. That. Uh, right now we are going into our hot take, hot take, hot take. I'm adding everything now. Okay, so I, I suppose uh, we've got Secrets of Dumbledore, Fantastic Beast three out this week. Um, Clarice and Amon have seen it. I haven't, um, and I suppose. Anyone who kind of listens to us or follow us, we're quite, we're pretty, quite kind of a, we're a bit more right on than other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Is that our new slogan? Uh, yeah, we're like, we're like right on. Um, cool, no, look, cool podcast. I think there's a conversation to be had about um, whether you, whether, whether you should or would watch a film if it's our critical duty our oath to review every film that comes out obviously we don't because the amount of films that are out each week means we can't possibly do it so I suppose with that choice like what do we put our name to so I think with this one rather than doing an actual review session we thought we'd just kind of provide space to each other to talk about whether if we want to review the film if we don't want to review the film or the reasons why and reason why for that so you know everyone knows about I don't think we need to kind of re- rehash the kind of things about why J.K. Rowling has become quite a problematic figure. Her, her opinions on trans people um, are questionable. Uh, I think quite there's as much uh, people who disagree with her views as agrees with them. But this is also a film that uh, many people are involved in. Interestingly enough, J.K. Rowling hasn't actually promoted this film at all. Uh, Warner Brothers have clearly distanced themselves a lot uh, from including Rowling in marketing materials and all that jazz, even though she co-wrote the script. Um, and obviously, you know, it's her wizarding world. Uh, so, 
Clarice, uh, I'll come to you first. Where are we? Where do you stand on this, and why? I think you know it, it is. It's always a tricky thing, and you know we've reviewed on this podcast films with people. You know, <laughs> West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Like West Side Story is a great example. Like we reviewed that film, um, and we acknowledged the allegations against Ansel Elgort. And, you know, I think going into that, watching it, I mentally could take that element out and I could go, look, I'm going to talk about this movie while recognizing the alleged actions of this person and mentally I'm going to cut them out and I'm going to put them to the side. But I did see, I did see the new Fantastic Beast movie and my mind could not do that. Like, my mind could not go, okay, just, like, cut this out and put it to the side and try to treat the the thing as its own piece of art. Um, because, yeah, as you said, it's, it's such a unique and weird and upsetting situation where, you know, I don't want to overly put blame on the people who made this film. You know, I don't want to be like, fuck you, Jude Law. There are contracts involved. <laughs> There's a lot of money involved. People are just trying to make a movie at the end of the day. But whatever amount of money this makes or whatever kind of promotion this film gets, inevitably it all comes back to her. And this is also just not a person who has done an individual action that we find reprehensible. This is someone who, uh, whether she actively meant to do this or not, is now seen as the public face of an entire hate movement that at the moment is responsible for why uh, kids in Texas are having to flee their homes. Like, that's the situation for me. (laughs) And so I, that's the thing, I can't just cut her out and put her to the side and say, look, I'm going to acknowledge this because... It is the entire thing, and I know that, like, whatever happens with this movie, if it does well at the box office, she's, like, it's going to come out, people are going to say, well, look, the general population, they don't give a shit about trans people because Fantastic Beasts did well at the box office. If it fails at the box office, then, oh, cry, 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 J.K. Rowling is a victim of cancel culture, and she'll probably go on some, like, interview, (laughs) like spree at the times of the telegraph crying about how her movie failed like i just just saying cancel culture that just gave louis ck a a grammy exactly yeah and for me i will say though i I, I do feel like it's louis ck and jake and this is what i think as well as well as like yeah i feel i don't want to compare louis ck to jk rowling um or that sort of thing like harvey weinstein to jk rowling um I fundamentally don't agree with what J.K. Rowling stands for and says, and everything mm-hmm. you said is correct. But I think one of the problems about this whole situation as well is that, you know, a lot of the general moviegoer doesn't know all any of this bullshit. Not, like, they don't know any of it because they're not on social media. They don't care. So, like, they're kind of going in totally unaware. And I often think what, what, what annoys me about so many conversations that good both people who are doing, like, a lot of bad faith arguments are, oh, you're comparing... You know, I did a thing with the other week on Front Row and the presenter said that she had unpopular opinions and then because he brought it up in the context of like a separating art versus artist like moral thing because an author had written something about it 
because he brought up like that sculpture who kind of turned out he looks like, a paedophile and there's that big that child sculpture in front of the BBC suddenly this presenter's getting attacked because he, there people are saying, you're equating so-and-so to so-and-so. So I just want to, <laughs> just to like, just to say that people are listening, there are different levels, there's a spectrum. There's like a spectrum. I mean, I know turfs don't agree that there's a spectrum, but <laughs> when it comes to art versus artists and problematic artists, there is a spectrum of like, extremely terrible actual physically harming people and then there's obviously with like you know and I understand Chris what you're saying is that sometimes she's not physically hurting anyone but her language and her, her, her views is contributing to you know people emboldening people about that mm-hmm. but it's such a weird it's like a every each individual everything's unique each individual person is like a unique and we can't like I feel very much that um there we it's not black and white and there is actually an argument to only focus on this person individually and not compare it to it's hard isn't it <laughs> sorry I feel like I'm yeah. going around about no you're right it, but... it's the difference between direct and indirect action I think yes. that's what's so tricky about this is that you know when a person when an individual commits a crime that's so easy you go well that person has done this thing (laughs) yeah we can but we're talking about somebody who at the end of the day has just said words and you know there's been a lot of the way that it's reported i will say misinformation about oh she's not she's not said anything trans she's just said that she cares about women blah 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 so it seems i can understand why people would just not see the issue at all with seeing fantastic piece and that's why i don't i have been i'm not i feel like i'm very much not here to tell people what to do (laughs) or like tell people you gotta boycott this or you're a bad person because as you said like the the filtering of knowledge through society has been so poor that most people really don't know the ex- the meaning behind what she said i guess does that make sense yeah <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know and i think maybe that's part that's what i kind of feel like my responsibility is on the internet which is as people may have noticed i do tend to tweet about her every once in a while because i feel like it's important that people see what she's saying (laughs) uh so that we don't get this idea that she's just saying uh, women you know women it's not that (laughs) it's very much not that and also there's that favorite famous thing the pen is mightier than the sword and sometimes words can have far more of an impact than we uh you know we can try and say oh it's just words but actually sometimes you know, it's yeah. like the whole sticks and stones will break your bones. It's like, yeah, that's bullshit. That was such a fallacy yeah. that people told us as kids. And- like, oh, no, it'll never hurt you. Okay, then why am I in therapy? <laughs> and when you're getting quoted, you know, by lawmakers in Texas who are making the yeah. laws that are happening. I mean, when you're getting quoted by, uh, when you're getting endorsed by Vladimir Putin, that's when you go, that is well, oh, you yes. the guy? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I agree with... Uh, pretty much all of what you're saying. Uh, full disclosure, I did write a review for this film, for Sci-Fi Now, although I haven't really tweeted about it uh, for obvious reasons. I think it's a... 
it's an annoying thing in that while yes words can have impact um a lot of the time i feel like we're preaching to the choir because i live in watford and you know there are signs all over watford of you know the big high potter thing at leaves and studios i take trains to london uh regularly every time i'm on those trains i see at least you know three or four people with high potter bags um you know as Hayner says, what J.K. Rowling's actions have, have been over the last few years, like that's still a really popular tourist attract- attraction. There's still this film is still going to make millions of millions, and this, this, this film is still going to make millions, and that's annoying and frustrating on one level. I've, with this movie, I was really trying to divorce myself from the J.K. Rowling of it all, but it's impossible because the moment Fantastic Beast ends we see her name three times in 10 seconds in the end credits. <laughs> it's like, produced by J.K. Rowling, written by J.K. Rowling, based on the story by J.K. Rowling, it's impossible to divorce yourself from that when it's all said and done. Like, it's better than the second one, which I think is awful. And to be honest, I was done with the franchise after that because I'm not sure if J.K. Rowling had started up her nonsense at that point, but, you know, that had either been started or was on the horizon. Then you had the fact that the film just wasn't that good and a lot of unearned, stupid character decisions like what they do with Queenie in that film especially. And then you had the Johnny Depp of it all was still a really huge thing at the time. Uh, and then I'm pretty sure either Ezra Miller had done the first you know, Oh my God, stupid Ezra thing. Miller. <laughs> well, I've even talked about them because they choked out a woman. This is like years ago now. Um, and that, that, and I think recently. that to yeah. clarify that had not happened okay. when Crimes Against okay. Grindelwald had come um, out. It was but yeah, so that. so so yeah, the the film had you know not been that good. Johnny Depp with it all bad character decisions, the retconning <laughs> that film especially was awful. Um, so I was pretty much done with the franchise then. Then in the intervening four years, you've had everything going on with Ezra Miller. Um, with J.K., with Johnny Depp, you know, resigning uh, or like, leaving the project like one week into production. I'm like, especially then the, the second film also had bad box office. Um, so a part of me is surprised that they st- stuck it out. Um, I'm annoyed at this film, especially, and this is a bit spoilery, but I'm annoyed because if they hadn't announced five of these films, this would be the film they would end it. And there's a very clear endpoint for this franchise in this film that they just basically walk away from because we've announced five of these things and we're going to have to jump up momentum and create a whole new story twice to get to the exact same place that we are currently at. And Chris, I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about when I say that. Uh, it's just ridiculous to me because it was a prime opportunity to just end this franchise there. Um, and we'll see how much money this third one makes um, because I think if the box office returns are disappointing again, then I could definitely see just, then I can definitely see a situation in which the next two movies go straight to HBO Max and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I, I, at the absolute most, it's a three star or five star movie. I would not give it any more than that. Um, for me, I mean, I 
I really dislike the last one. I mm-hmm. hate, I think the fact that they wrote in um, a rape, um, the rape plot device mm-hmm. uh, for Lita Lestrange's existence. I found that to be quite gross. And I don't understand why more people aren't, why, I mean, I remember pitching it to a few places, like, can I talk about this? And they wouldn't take it on. And I suppose that was prior to like, you know, when JK Rowling was like, go girl power. Um, mm-hmm. But I found that really, you know, a black woman getting under the imperious curse um, and then having this thing. And it was, I found that just really, I can't believe that. Sh- well, I can believe because things, I, I think as much as someone can write compassionate things in one way, uh, she's never been good on representation or for marginalized people. Um, nope. So let's not pretend. Um, I... And then this one, I think, apart from Mads Mikkelsen, and also I like Callum Turner. I know Callum Turner, so I was quite, oh, you know, sporting. But the idea that Mads Mikkelsen was in it was quite kind of attractive for me to watch. And I'm a bit of a kind of, I quite am a completionist. Like, even if I don't think it's that good, I kind of want to see them. So I had just in them. I suppose part mm-hmm. of my job to be aware of what, what's going on. So that as a research thing, I think a lot of my job is watching things, but then saying that, like, I don't watch Roman Polanski movies. And again, not trying to compare to the two, but it's like, mm-hmm. if you can find, it's like, I made a decision that I didn't want to watch Roman Polanski movies um, because of what he, after discovering really what he did, and it's like with Woody Allen and stuff. Um, but I would say, like, in a way, so, so when he came around to, on Monday, I felt quite ill. I was like, I don't really want to go go see it. And I thought I could go see it. And I thought, oh, I'm just not in a rush. And so for me, I just not got the urge to watch it <laughs> or go, you know, I don't feel like I need to see it. If you know, And if you find yourself, and I suppose the listeners, it's up to you to decide. No one's mm-hmm. going to attack you. You're not doing anything wrong by seeing a movie. It's just whether you can watch something in a vacuum or not. And some people can, some people can't. Like, I wrote a whole piece about Joss Whedon and Buffy's legacy. A lot of people can separate him from the series there are a lot of people who love the harry potter world and the franchises and like fantastic beasts and are able to separate that but the fact is he's she's still kind of actively involved in it rather than it being a 25 year old project i just want to say like i i agree i agree with you and i think the most important thing what's so much more important about the decision of whether you go see harry potter or not is that you stay educated, you write to your MPs, you donate to to trans charities, because we are in a massive crisis right now. It's getting really scary. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think that's that's the thing. I don't know how history will look back upon J.K. Rowling. I think it is incredibly strange that an author who wrote a story about, like, a boy wizard... (laughs) (laughs) who went to a little posh school for little wizard kids is somehow at the center of this like critical and terrifying shift to to the right and to um i'm gonna say fascist tendencies (laughs) towards minority groups um it's really that's the thing it's so surreal and i i understand why people are struggling to process it and know what to do when it comes to Harry Potter because we've not really had a situation like this before. Uh, so yeah, I would say don't 
don't yeah don't feel overly guilty about harry potter just stay educated because uh everyone's help is needed can i also just as a recommendation if you're looking for a, a quite more of an inclusive wide-ranging book series that's fantasy and all that uh cassandra clare did this shadow hunters and there's yes. like so many different trilogies in it and expansions of it and it deals with it's lgbtq it's diverse it's like so depthful like so deep and so much and there's a there's even a trans character in that and it really explores that in such a nice way so if you are looking for like some fantasy there is so much more out there like open your minds um, also Percy Jackson those books fucking slap and the person who wrote them is a really uh, chill dude so. yeah yeah and Cassandra I once interviewed her and she's really nice so you know I think Harry Potter is always going to be there I think admittedly I don't think I, I will say this Fantastic Beasts has proven time and again that it does not I mean it was based it's based on a book about Fantastic Beasts it's not even a full fledged thing I think it was if anything Fantastic Beasts is an example of flogging a dead horse. Um, mm, this mm. is, the whole franchise is a cash cow. Let's mm -hmm. be real. Um, so, you know, I think you can appreciate the original Harry Potter books and not feel like you have to watch Fantastic Beasts to make sure yeah. that you've got into it. That's my final thoughts on that. Fan fiction. You know, that's what I love about fan communities. You can take ownership of a thing. And exactly. you don't have, you can still enjoy Harry Potter and not give money to her. There's so many other cool, like, uh, fan-led projects. I'm on. Mm -hmm. Did you want to, anything to end on? No, you guys have covered it all. Okay. <laughs> another, do you have another YA series you would recommend? Oh, YA series I recommend. I mean, I, I, I need to read more books, to be honest, but I... I remember getting hooked on the Hunger Games very quickly. Um, those first two books especially, I think, are really well done. Um, it's been a while since I've seen the films. I know the first one was really, really good, and I like the second one too. Um, but yeah, it's high time. I'm, I'm, I'm in the mood for a reread of the Hunger Games. <laughs> Amon's like, I like my, I like my YA white and straight. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Where is that? Come on. No. Um, I mean, I love but, The Hunger Games. And I, I was in okay. my face. I watched, listened to, I read The Hunger Games, Divergent. Like, I've watched, like, read so many Twilight. But Hunger Games, when you look back on it, it's very white. It's very strange. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you one which has just come to mind. And it's a film that I wish got more love at the time. But I think it's called The Girl with All the Gifts. Oh, yeah. Um, they made the movie with Gemma Arterton. Yes, that was it. It was really, really good. Um, I didn't get much love at the time, but I really liked it. Hey. This is my thing now. I'm in my. It's because I'm in my little like nook corner where I've got all my like books and things. So every time they mention something and I have it, I'm like, "Hey, look, I have it. Here's the book." <laughs> and I have the book in my hand, listeners. Okay, cool. Well, there we go. Girl with all the gifts, uh, Shadow Hunter Chronicles, and Percy Jackson. There you go. And I kind of liked quite like Mortal Engines, but I don't know anything about the author, so I don't know if that. But don't see the movie. <laughs> yeah, that film was not good. No, it was so disappointing. But the book mm. was good. I really liked the book when it came out. Well, oh, well. 
Thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast. Guys, it really does make a difference, so show some love. Or not, if you don't want to love us, <laughs> remain silent. We're very lovable, though. Yeah. But you can tweet us at Fade to Black Pod if you have something you love, love, love. Just emphasis on that to shout out next week. And follow us. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram. I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black.